Welcome to the show, everybody. Couple updates for you. So the Myco Meditations, the January retreat in Jamaica, that's January 18th through 25th. Uh, amazing time. There's only 15 spots in, in there. Uh, we already have them about half full tentatively. We haven't, we are just now, by the time you're hearing this, they should be officially on the Myco Meditations site. If you're interested in coming for a psilocybin retreat, hanging out with me for the week and exploring, um, uh, your inner worlds and, uh, it's just a great opportunity for going there for therapeutic reasons, for, exploratory reasons and just it's a Caribbean paradise and we'll all get to hang out and um, chat about the brain and get to know one another. It's a fantastic time. That's why I keep on going back and there's been a hold up with figuring out they do like a basic retreat package and they do a comfort retreat and we're going back and forth and which one but the comfort retreat which is what we decided to go with. It's just a little bit more, and it's just a big difference in just like the quality of food. The basic retreat's fine. It's just a little redundant and, and basic um, food, and the the comfort retreat is just amazing meals every day, and it's just a world of difference, and the accommodations are, are nicer, and, and it's just so worth the little bit extra. And so we checked with a, a few of the people that showed interest to see what they were leaning towards first before deciding on on that to open it up um, to you guys. So check that out if you want to. And I'm hoping to get all of the on the herewearepodcast.com website. I, w- I would like to get some sort of the information for the partnerships with Michael Meditations and Libro.fm and the great courses plus.com slash here we are. Um, opportunity there um just so you can have more information like the libro.fm there's a there's a special here we are book recommendation list from past here we are guests so you can go on there and find books of guests listen to those episodes read their book um and it's a cool way of connecting uh, forming this interesting network of education and entertainment that I'm trying to build and be a part of, and it's been really fun. Um, Web design stuff is not my forte. I have someone helping me out with it, but uh, hopefully that'll be coming along soon. So check in there and with Shane Moss, M-A-U-S-S dot com to find out more about that. I don't know how much I'm going to be able to be talking about the greatcoursesplus.com partnership just because of the the way in which the agreement is. I'm not necessarily mentioning them on on every show. Libro.fm and Myco Meditations is kind of at, at my discretion and as much as I want to, but um, it's a ju- just a different arrangement with the greatcoursescom uh, slash here we are, but just just so you know, if you don't hear me talking about them in a couple episodes or something, we're still partners. I would still love for you to be taking their courses. Please do. I, I hope it works out so I can plug them all the time. I want to have episodes with the professors from the classes that I took. I'm really hoping to expand that much more. So, uh, so check that out. It's a great way to take online courses and 
what's the one that I'm taking right now? I told you about the, oh, uh, human personality, traits that shape how you think. Really fantastic course, blowing my mind. And, you know, I've had a lot of personality researchers on talking about the big five personality indicator, that sort of thing. Man, I am going to have so many more questions and and insights and things to share and ask about in future episodes when I have more personality researchers on because of this fantastic Great Courses Plus program that I've been taking. I sometimes watch it on the computer, sometimes go uh, and, and put it on audio and have it on my uh, my phone uh, through the Bluetooth in the car while I'm driving around. I am. I have been learning so much lately. It's just been this constant well of information, and usually I can only take so much, and I get fatigued. But I, I don't know. Something has been. It's, it, things have just been. I think because of all the uh, yoga and rock climbing and exercising and taking care of myself more, um, it's just kind of allowing for a more more space and expansion in my in my um, inner worlds there's there's more space there for for more information more learning and and so I'm uh, I'm building all of these new worlds of, of perception and insights and it's just been so exciting and, and so fun and that's why I'm so jazzed about these partnerships so I hope you check them out get a free month um, by going to greatcoursesplus.com slash here we are and audiobooks Guys, if you aren't into audiobooks, just give it a shot. I think that reading is sometimes, if you don't do it regularly, it can be intimidating because you like you zone out and you think like you're the only one that zones out or something, or you're bad at reading because you you missed some things or you're having to hit the rewind more often. That is a very normal experience that, as far as I can tell, never ends. Especially if you're doing it right. A lot of times. A lot of times, if you're uh, if you're really digesting information, you are gonna get you, you know you're going to take this this information that you are focusing on and have this attention and you, and you're and you're going to process it in your own way and that can kind of take you away from that active listening or reading momentarily. Don't get discouraged by that. I've let myself get discouraged by that in the past and it's really unfortunate because I think it it has deterred me from reading as much um, as I'd like to because um, you you lose a little bit of confidence but that's just really part of the experience. So a little pep talk, some updates, all that good stuff for the day and uh, enjoy today's episode. Are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. Today, I'm talking with Assistant Professor of Psychology at Sonoma State University and Affiliate Assistant Professor at the Center for Mind and Brain at UC Davis. Jesse Bankson is joining me today. Jesse, thank you. Awesome. Great to be here. Thank you so much for joining me. I had no idea. This is my first time ever visiting Sonoma. I didn't know it was such a sprawling place. I didn't didn't realize that. It is. It has a, a rural vibe. It's It's agricultural. 
yeah. at, at its core. So everything's spread out. And- right. It makes sense now that I, now that I hear it. It's just you rarely go into a city like uh, like there's Dallas, which is like this huge sprawling city. But this is this is a huge one. Beautiful drive. I had a great time coming in. I'm excited to talk to you about your work. Give us a little bit of background on what you do, how you got into it in the first place, and uh, yeah. So I study the electrical signal associated with thoughts, cognition, specifically attentional control, how we filter things into our head. Every thing, everything that you experience, every emotion, there's an associated anatomical structure in the brain. And corresponding with that, there's a difference in the change of the electrical field the brain produces. So what we work on here is we try to decode the relationship between the electrical field that the brain's producing and our internal thoughts, experience, and awareness. And so that's where I am now. That's what we do now. I'm a long way from home. How I got here, I'm from Trenton, North Dakota, small town in the middle of North Dakota, not a lot going on, but I ended up going to. <laughs> I, I'm from I'm from Wisconsin originally, and I always uh, small a smallish town in Wisconsin, and I always thought that there was not a lot going on there. And then I drove through the Dakotas. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You can drive for two hours at night and see a light or two, right? In this, in, especially in the southwest corner, it, and you can go across come across towns of four people. There's an actual sign with a population of four people. Really? Oh, there's all kinds of stuff oh, like that. It's, that's fantastic. There's 600,000 people in the, in the entire state. So, mm, right. <laughs> so, you know, I went to college. I, I was the last kid anybody thought would go to college, uh, you know, to university. Went to a small state school. I was going to be a business major, but started reading about psychology. Became really interested in time perception and started reading about that, how and it just came from an intuitive understanding of, wow, sometimes the day seems to drag on and sometimes it seems to narrow. This is everyday experience by an individual. Why does this happen? And it got me thinking, there isn't an external stimulus. For all of our other sensory systems, there's information coming in. Light, we have electromagnetic energy coming in, gets transduced into a neural signal that becomes vision. Sound is changes in mechanical pressure in the air. That gets transduced into a f- chem- neurochemical signal in the cochlea and gets sent to the auditory cortex. And then we're hearing Elliot Smith. Mm-hmm. We're hearing music. And somehow that change happens. So there's a physical... Way, s- way to bum everyone out with the <laughs> Elliot Smith reference, by the way. <laughs> My students... I have a, a crop of students right now that are super into Elliot Smith. That was in my head. So hip. I should have said. I'm, I'm <laughs> just taking whatever jokes I could get at this point. Uh, so, but I, I understand where you're going with this. There's these physical sensory experiences um, are, you know, a little more intuitive how they're working than something like our perception of time. Exactly. There isn't a stimulus. For all other sensory systems, we can source it out to mechanical pressure electromagnetic energy there is something out there in the world but there's no time molecule Mm. there's no time wave there's no time particle that we're sensing there's no energy out there and so part of what i do is something called psychophysics 
where we look at the relationship between energy and the physical world and how that's transduced into experiential energy in our mind. That's the way I term it, experiential energy. Hmm. And there's a qualitative aspect of our inner experience that's a traceable, empirically demonstrable direct consequence of real physical energy out there in the world. Hmm. And so we can look at how that real physical energy changes and how our mind changes in response to it. Mm. And so this is the field of psychophysics. It's the field of sensation and perception. This is what motivated experimental psychology in the first place. Back in the 1800s, the first scientific psychologists were psychophysicists. Gustav Fechner, Weber, they were looking at, they were looking at the mind from a mathematical and physical perspective. They were saying, we have this inner consciousness. It's in here. You know, the title of the show's here we are, right? We're in here in our heads, and that's our world as we know it introspectively. But it's a product of stuff that's out there. Mm-hmm. And so through the scientific method, they were interested in looking how the stuff out there, how it changed, and how that related to our inner experience. Mm-hmm. And so what's the mathematical computation that occurs between information that's out there, energy, I use the two terms interchangeably, energy that's out there and how it becomes represented in our awareness. Hmm. I mean, I am, uh, it usually when you're in Sonoma talking about energy fields in the brain, uh, you know, there's going to be some crystal talk happening shortly after and maybe <laughs> the secret. Um, <laughs> but what you're doing is something very different than all of, all of that stuff. For sure. And I, I wouldn't entertain the notion of what they know and what I know and what they do and what I do. They're different worlds, but they, they might intersect at some point uh-huh. in the future. Who knows? It's a matter of of the progression of knowledge. Uh, there's a lot of stuff being done on meditation, how it changes brain structure and function, mm. uh, things such as that, but I know nothing about crystals. <laughs> um, all of the time dilation stuff and uh, our perceptions of time is uh, endlessly fascinating to me. I, I really, one thing that I think a lot about is how our... I mean, we use all sorts of factors in measuring our perception of time, like you're in a hurry to get to a podcast, um, and that makes time feel, have a different quality than when you're just sitting around, um, you know, twiddling your thumbs or whatever. And, and, And I often think about how, you know, life, the billions of years this universe has been in existence, we're here in this blip, but it certainly doesn't feel like a blip from from our subjective experience and our our kind of perception of time is very much related to our individual lives. Like I, like I feel like we kind of measure time almost based on our lifespan in a way. Like a hundred years seems like a long time to us because a hundred years is a fair that's a fairly long human life. Whereas like yeah. a mayfly that is alive for about four days or whatever. A hundred years to us seem probably feels has the same quality as four days to 
a mayfly and if you were to like talk to a mayfly and be like we're gonna give you another 30 days a mayfly be like what a nightmare what in the world would i do with all of that that time you know be like telling someone you're gonna they're gonna last for ten thousand years like oh my god i don't i'm not sure i want to even sign up for that right so or they might be like let's rock and roll more babies <laughs> more babies oh boy yeah i hope that's not what the <laughs> what the case becomes but as we advance our medical knowledge and extend our life expectancy but who knows it's a good question would you want to live for ten thousand years like there's sort of some beauty and <laughs> we've got this little blink here to have fun I with i uh, i say no thank you right. i'm i'm happy i i i'm signing up for the the average general life expect maybe maybe when i get toward the end of this and i'm 70 years old or something like that i'll be grasping on to every last second that i can get but right now my experience of this is like yeah 80 years sounds fine to me yeah, yeah and maybe just one more day for a plate of bacon and, <laughs> and you know just I'll, I'll go on but but you're on to something with the idea of the relativity Right. Of, of time and that your experience of time being relative to your entire lifespan, but also relative to what's going on in the moment. Mm -hmm. People have postulated, and there's some evidence that maybe there's an internal clock. Your brain functions rhythmically. It's, it produces specific frequencies. Specific frequencies of what are called neural oscillations are related to specific acts of cognition. There's an alpha band, it's 10 hertz, it's involved with suppressing certain cortical areas. There's a frontal theta area, 5 hertz, that's involved with focusing attention, inhibiting responses, anything that requires this active kind of maintenance of other parts of your brain that's in the frontal executive. So that's one way to look at it. Maybe there's this internal rhythmic clock and that gives us this sense of time, but it doesn't work like a real clock in that. A real clock, a second is a second. And in civilized Western culture, I don't even know if I want to use the word civilized, that's a relative term, but in, in contemporary culture, we have segmented, segmented time into seconds, milliseconds, even to the oscillate, an atomic clock. They're looking at the oscillation of a cesium particle, right? And, it, and if, I don't know... But they, the, the segmentation of time into these tiny little units of precision, and that's the world that we live in. Be mm -hmm. here at this moment and at this moment, and we, we schedule it out and we map it out. There are cultures that, tribal cultures, that use something like, as the basic unit of time, how long it takes to boil a pot of water. <laughs> right? <laughs> Like I, I'm sorry to laugh at those cultures. Uh, yeah, like that was a real that laugh. That was a very condescending laugh that just shot out. Ha ha! Those fools with their pots of water. I, I mean, it's, I wish it's a little silly. You yeah, you were only like two pots of water late today. <laughs> I I mean, this is so. I mean, relating to this, there's so many ways. There's so many kind of evolved reasons why our time perception needs to be so kind of fluid flexible and subjective and because we have to adapt to all of these different contexts and right now i'm in a podcast where i have 
45 minutes to an hour. You're sitting here talking. A, a question kind of pops up into my head. I'm like, yeah, okay, you know, maybe I'll get to that question. Maybe I won't. It's it's not a matter of urgency. If uh, if like you drop something on my toe uh, right now, uh, my perception of change of time will change dramatically. My uh, you know a split second is is too long for for my brain to go about processing things. It probably doesn't even that pain information goes to my spinal cord and, and probably just sends a signal right back doesn't even check in with the old noggin 100 it's milliseconds like, it's just like let's get the hell out of here let's move that foot yep. you don't want to feel that again and and so i i get that the reasons why there's so much flexibility especially from a conscious perspective but you you don't think that there's any um anything in our brain that is taking an actual like more accurate objective view of time even even though it's not filtering that information into our conscious awareness um all kinds of things to unpack there objective uh, as yeah, objective kind of things of time the the fir- the first thing i can say we are actually in fact as a, as as a species as an orga- organism strikingly in time with each other Mm-hmm. 10 minutes to one person is pretty close to 10, 10 minutes in another person. And it's so there must be some kind of internal clock, sometimes some kind of internal mechanism for producing a sense of time. It definitely doesn't seem to be something that's coming from an external type of energy particle, like how light produces vision. Mm-hmm. It's something that is, it, and it's a striking sense. We do have a sense of time that as a species, we're all pretty good at estimating time. And we all tend to be operating under the same clock, right? Maybe there's, with some differences between individuals. But it's something that's completely... Ha- so it must be something that's completely happening in our mind because mm-hmm. it's, it's not out there in the world. And it's something that is very gestalt. It's larger than the sum of its parts. So in some way, we take the information from the world as it's unfolding and that gets represented like maybe number of neural events right number of amount of information you're being exposed to in a given moment time might dilate or if there's no information at all time might also dilate there's something like a a, it's called a quadratic relationship between uh environmental events and the internal perception of time Mm -hmm. so if there's too many things going on your perception of time might stretch out but if you're in solitary confinement or in a jail cell, time might also stretch out. But mm-hmm. right in the middle, there's this sweet spot of like normal occurrence of everyday events. And that's, that's where our perception of time is, is most commonly at. And, and, and that's the perception of time that we tend to commonly share amongst individuals. What's fascinating about it, though, is the nature of, this, the, of what's going on in the world changes our internal, I don't even want to say perception of time, but internal construction of time. It's a construct. It's something that we're building in our mind that's an inference based upon environmental input. Mm. Please walk Sparky for me. No way. (laughs) I'll throw in a caramel frappe. Ooh, make it a large. Deal. Get a sweet deal. $2 any size McCafe beverage on the McDonald's app. Between you and me, Sparky. 
I would have walked you for free. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Offer valid through 4322 or participate in McDonald's. Valid one time per day. McDonald's app download and registration required. Yeah, I mean, I guess to restate, uh, and, and I, I think that you did sort of already answer it, but but to restate it, so one of the one of the great tragedies about life, if you ask me, has to do with this time perception stuff, where uh, you know everyone's like, you got to get in this flow state, and like that's where you want to be, but when you're in a flow state, it, it, you you don't think so. You don't know it. Uh, it, it oh, oh you, like, yeah, you don't. I was it. feeling. I uh, was feeling it. Uh, yeah, yeah. You, you don't know until you are. It was after the fact because inherent within a flow state is that you aren't thinking about these things. And exactly. You, and so these seemingly go right by like that. Whereas if you're getting waterboarded or, or whatever, uh, you know, time really seems to slow down. So like every everyone wants to like live a long full life but then if like it if it's all just subjective anyway then if you want life to appear long like uh, what do you just like get into masochism and then that will <laughs> that will ma- make life seem like forever you know so this is like one of these tragic things to me about our our perception of of time and and the predicament of of our uh, the conscious space that we live in but my question is is you take you do an experiment where you take uh, two groups of people, uh, they're both going to um, work like an eight-hour. They're they're both going to go in for this eight-hour period of time, and one group of people gets the fun one, and the other group of people gets like the solitary confinement or whatever, mm-hmm. and and. You know, the fun one, I, I know subjectively, they, they would be like, wow, that went right by. And the torture one, they'd be like, man, that seemed like it drug on forever. However, at the same time, I think that if you asked either party at like the five hour mark, how much time has gone by, I think that they would both be fairly accurate in their assessment of that time. They've done all kinds of experiments on that. And okay. I, I've done some myself, and it, it actually is the case that the those kinds of manipulations actually do change people's estimates. They do. How, oh, absolutely. Okay. That's that's how we know it. People have done the experiments. Even simple things such as that's an that's a extreme case. Uh, you know, torture condition, <laughs> roller coaster ride, ice cream, <laughs> right. right? And you're gonna you're gonna see big effects in terms of the estimation of the passage of time between uh-huh. those two conditions. There, there is going to be objective differences. Okay. Uh, the people in the solitary confinement are going to actually, without the presence of a clock, estimate time as, as being more dilated, as stretching out more. Mm-hmm. And there, there might be thousands of studies on those kinds of effects. There's studies on even, even more simple level things of just having people on the scale of seconds at a time look at an image and depending on the contents of the image the individual even if it's presented for five seconds you'll see effects hmm. where depending on the contents of the image the person will estimate how long the image was presented to them differently as a function of what's in the image what, what like the amount of information exactly. the amount of interest in like uh, you, you 
show uh you show like a naked picture or something like that maybe that's different than looking at some like shape exactly or something that's exactly right and so they were trying to in in this particular study that i'm thinking about they were just showing people more complex image i shouldn't say complex complicated images and things with more information in them relative to images that had less information and these were just abstract images it was uh, how much information is there not even in terms of content versus nude picture versus blank screen Mm-hmm. But just the the amount of information, number of angles, number of lines, and people would estimate the pictures with more information as take, being presented more time. Mm-hmm. Even on that on that second level scale, you we, we can see those kinds of effects. And so you take that kind of effect and scale it up to solitary confinement versus eating cheeseburgers for an hour. Well, that might turn out to be por- torture, but you know the fun condition. <laughs> that, that, that keep eating that cheeseburger right? yeah like there, there, there's there's two different cheeseburger conditions <laughs> must one's keep torture, eating one, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the other one is stop whenever you want and have dessert yeah yeah uh so th- if you scale that up to that kind of an effect you'll you'll, you'll observe even more profound differences in the perception of time hmm Okay, so I got to thinking about this too. Yeah, I, in undergrad, I worked as a telemarketer for a while. <laughs> yeah. I lasted about a week. Okay, and talk about time well, dilating. I mean, <laughs> that's not uh, you know making it a week as a telemarketer. Um, that's you gave it a shot. Oh, it, it yeah, it it, 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 beca- <laughs> it there it became stories, calling up strangers and having conversations with them about it. Yeah, so, yeah. No, uh, so you're, you're my perception of time in that right. instant. I'm like. How easy would it be to rob that bank next door and just get out of here? <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I, I did a lot of factory work, and and um, uh, you know, some of it was just an hourly flat hourly wage. Some of it was piece rate, and the piece rate is you know you make X amount of money per hundred pieces mm-hmm. that that you're making, or so. So then in that case, you're kind of racing against the clock. Yeah. And, uh, and so it does make time go by faster, uh, whereas just the hourly wage is just this prison that you're trapped in for eight hours. Um, Better busy than bored. Right. So do you think that, hmm, what am I, how am I going to articulate this? This is, oh, all right. What I'm saying might be, complicated to the level of maybe a little convoluted it so uh, in terms of what information is getting filtered into the brain and the perception of that how much of this just has to do with focus itself and your as you're saying there's more information in this in this picture and so there's more interest by the brain. The, the brain is like, well, there's, there's more value to be mined within this instant. And therefore, you're more consciously aware of these deeper levels of processing than you would otherwise need to be aware of. In the, much in the same way that... Um, 
when you're almost in a car accident and time slows down, I think that like these experiences of of the you know math of of turning your hand in a certain meal a way to steer the wheel and pump the brake and everything that's always happening in the brain but it's just not being filtered into your conscious awareness until it needs to be and then that is what's kind of causing some of this time distortion is just the access to regions of information processing that is sometimes unnecessary it, it you know i get it what you're of- saying if you if you think about the moment when you're in a car crash or walking down the hallway or in that moment you're doing calculus right you're going at a certain speed the other car is going at a certain speed there's a trajectory there's a, a momentum and in that instant your motor cortex your visual cortex has to integrate to produce a response that's best for the instant swerve right. left swerve light right how hard to hit the brakes etc cetera, etc cetera. you're doing that when you're coming up to a yellow light too should i hit the gas or hit the brakes how long is the yellow light how fast am i going those are all incredibly difficult calculus equations mm-hmm. that might take a person hours to do right but you're doing it in that split second some part of your brain intuitively knows that right and is doing that and I think of what I'm hearing from you is that perhaps it's access to that in that moment. Yeah, I'm not sure of that. I would on, I would only be speculating if if that's the source of the time dilation in that instant. I would say I don't think so because you do those kind of calculus equations intuitively all the time when you're walking down a hallway, you're shooting a free throw, uh, even when you're reaching your hand out to grab something that's moving. You're calculating the motion and trajectory of something. Well, that's very much what I'm saying, though, that that all of those exact same processes are happening all of the time, no matter what. But like when the shit's going down, you need a little more um, conscious interaction with those Under- layers of, of processing. Yeah. And so and I think then that's the arousal response. Mm-hmm. I think that's the that's your heart beating more quickly increase in blood pressure, increase in the supply of oxygen to your brain, increase in the, in the supply of blood flow to your brain in that moment that's induced by the arousal response. And it might give you a little more of a fine-tuned access to that information in that moment mm-hmm. when shit's about to hit the fan. Hmm. Um, I think, yeah. Yeah. Uh, it, this is uh, so fascinating. And I, so the other thing, because I want to get more into uh what you're what you're doing now uh i i have a, a anyway I, I love talking about the subjectivity of time we haven't talked about it much on this podcast um so i'm already having lots of fun and we haven't even really so we've never we've never on the podcast talked at least my memory of it is we've never really talked about some of these electrical fields in the brain, we've we've talked a whole lot about synapses and neurotransmitters and uh, all of this uh, uh, kind of stuff that I, I think is a little more commonplace in say neuroscience. For sure, um, I I've never had anyone on talking about some of these electrical fields in the brain. So, uh, can you expand on what those are? What's going on 
with that from like a 101 for sure so there's different kinds of electrical fields and they're produced by the anim- a- anatomy of the brain so when the prior researchers that you may have discussed the the, the relationship between neuroscience and psychology the physical substrate of the brain and the mind they've probably have addressed it in terms of neurotransmitters and structural anatomy that there's this neurotransmitter that's released and this dendritic things happening and this part of the brain does that and if you lose this part of the brain like the fusiform face area it's a little neural modular robot and all it does is sit around and look for faces and Mm -hmm. it sees faces and in a way it sees faces for you because a person could have damage to the fusiform face area. They still feel like the same person. They have the same narrative, the same self-identity, but they just can't see faces anymore. So from that perspective, that's, that anatomy certainly is the substrate of your consciousness for faces. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's, there's a, a thousand different parts of the brain. Every aspect of your being, there's some physical substrate that's producing that. And you name it, like there's, you can just, that could be a whole podcast in and of itself. Right. But, so people who think about it from that perspective are looking at the structure, or maybe they're looking more at it from the chemical standpoint, like, look, neurotransmitters, this chemical that's released, that's what determines your experience. The dopaminergic system, the nucleus accumbens, if that's lighting up and there's dopamine in your brain, you're going to feel good. That's the source of your awareness and that's true as well an individual's perspective from a scientific standpoint is going to arise from what they know about my perspective is that of electrophysiology and i'm admittedly biased i'll say those structures those anatomical structures and the neurotransmitters their purpose is to produce an electrical field and it's actually the electrical field that the brain produces that is the substrate for conscious awareness, for cognition, for all of those other experiences, that that electrical field represents the information that is you. And that if you lose the, the neural substrate, the reason you lose the awareness of it is because that neural substrate isn't there to produce the electrical field anymore. And so that's what I study. And there's different ways to look at it. One, people will go into either living humans in a very extreme circumstance where they have to get brain surgery done anyways, and they'll record directly from synapses and neurons and record the electrical activity that the brain's producing when an individual is engaging in some cognitive act. And they'll do that in monkeys and other animals as well. That's one thing. So we're looking at the firing rate of individual neurons and how that's related to consciousness and cognition. And that when a neuron fires, it produces an action potential. This is a flow of ions in and out of a membrane of sodium and potassium. And that flow of ions produces an electrical field because these ions are positively or negatively charged. And so the idea there is there's all kinds of behaviors and all kinds of thoughts that are intimately connected to the flow of positively or negatively charged ions or anions in and out of a membrane. And those sometimes can even predict behavior in a moment. So that's on, on one level, the electrical field that we, we can measure. What I do is I take an EEG hat, I can put it on somebody's head, 
and I can record the electrical activity that their brain produces. Why weren't we doing this the whole podcast? I should be wearing one of these hats right now. Do you want one? <laughs> I do want one. We need a video. <laughs> I, I know you, you can see one here that I'm looking at, and your listeners can look it up online. If Lady Gaga is listening, she's got to wear this on the red carpet. Oh, yeah. It'll it, be is, a, it is very fashionable. It'll be a craze. <laughs> but the cool thing is it's, it's not invasive. Yeah. So it's perfectly safe. I can just put the hat on somebody's head, record their brain, and we can look at the electrical field that their brain's producing from the scalp. So there's enough electrical activity produced by the cortex that it conducts through the dura, through the scalp. And with these very sensitive recording systems and decades of research uh, on learning how to do this, we can record the electrical field that the cortex produces in response to all kinds of cognitive events. And those electrical fields are most likely, as far as we know, produced by neurotransmitters as they tickle the dendrites of neurons. So what drives a neuron towards its action potential threshold are neurotransmitters touching it. Mm -hmm. Neurotransmitters are going to float through the synapse, and they're going to tickle the dendrite. And they're not always going to cause the neuron, the dendritic neuron, the postsynaptic neuron to fire. It's only when it reaches a certain threshold mm -hmm. that the neuron's going to produce an action potential. But the thing about these neurotransmitters tickling dendrites is they're happening all the time in the presence or absence of an action potential. So those neurotransmitters, that tickling produces an electrical field that summates and it's occurring over such a vast field of neural real estate that it the electrical field can can conduct to the scalp where we can record it. So there are two different electrical signals, one that's produced by action potentials, one that's produced by the neurotransmitters that are causing action potentials. They're related, of course, but they're differentiable. Mm -hmm. We've found that in certain cases, the electrical field produced by the neurotransmitters that can be recorded from the scalp does in fact have different functional things go related to psychology and cognition than action potentials themselves. Although some people might disagree with that. It's a point of debate, but they definitely are distinct signals. Mm. And so that's, that's what I study. And I love it because it's non-invasive. I can sit here and put the hat on somebody's head. What I've been doing lately is trying to figure out a way to infer using machine learning algorithms and uh, deep learning to infer the contents of an individual's awareness in a moment, in their mind, based upon observing the electrical field that their brain produces. And so that has all kinds of, it's fascinating to me, I would do it just for fun to, you know, it's, it's like mind reading, right? Right. And so, but it has all kinds of practical implications, like people with ALS, Stephen Hawking, people with locked-in syndrome. There are people who've been in comas for 10 years and they wake up and they say, hey, I heard everything everybody said about me, right? <laughs> so if you could put a hat on somebody's head, record, and it's non-invasive, you don't have to put them in an expensive fMRI scanner. You can put a hat on somebody's head and maybe say, hey, if you can hear what I say, I want you to pretend like, I want you to imagine a visual scene. Imagine your-, your A barn or a something. A barn. Imagine your, your bedroom yeah. you know, that, you grew, that you grew up in, a familiar place. If you can hear me, imagine that. And I want you to pretend as if you're attending to the left side of the bedroom. 
And what we would see if they're conscious and they're actually doing it, because if you do this in conscious individuals, when they attend to the left side of a visual field, you're going to see a decrease in the right visual cortex Hmm. alpha, a 10 hertz signal. And you can actually infer where someone is attending with some degree of accuracy. We're still working on it, but we're getting up to 90% of the trials Hmm. where we can infer a decision somebody made in their mind of whether to attend to the left or right in normal, healthy people. Uh, so, but if you can do that, take that signal and put it on somebody's head in a coma, you might be able to ask them all kinds of questions. Mm. But, hey, do you have to pee? Attend to the left or attend to the right. Maybe we can get this catheter off, you know, what, whatever. At least, at least try to get some way to get them to communicate. And maybe even someday individuals could interact through a computer. Maybe they can move a cursor on a screen just, just by thinking, by reading this out. And the good thing about EEG is, and this is the trouble with doing this with fMRI, one thing, fMRI is very expensive, $1,000 an hour to rent, really expensive to buy. Uh, you put somebody inside of this really huge electromagnetic field, and they've got to sit in this scanner, and it's buzzing and banging, and it has really low temporal resolution you don't know exactly when something is happening in the brain in an fmri scanner the signal is always delayed because the fmri scanner is measuring the compensatory blood flow response to the electrical field the electrical field happens first fmri is measuring the blood flow change in response to that change Mm -hmm. eeg the good thing about that is the electrical field the brain produces travels at the speed of light for all intents and purposes. So you know instant, instantaneously in real time what's happening in the brain based upon in response to a person's thoughts. Mm. And so that's cool because you could sit in front of a computer and get an estimate of what, what's in a person's mind in real time. Hmm. So how far, because I remember seeing something a long time ago of uh taking someone who um you know like a stephen hawking type situation als situation where they can't move speak blah blah blah, and they uh they were able to create this vocabulary map their brain be like okay when they when they you show them a picture of a basketball this is the region that's lighting up these early electrical signals and then when you later have them uh, like in their mind's eye picture a basketball then we're seeing that they're thinking of a basketball and then the computer can be like basketball and so you can potentially uh, this computer could speak for you and in this limited in this limited way do you uh, i mean how how accurate are these measurements at the moment and how accurate do you think that they'll become in the near future? Is, is this something that we'll be able to, uh, you know, instead of having like Google glasses or whatever, I can just, when I'm driving be or hanging out with people or whatever, I can, I can be wearing this cap and quick send a text message to somebody without, you know, having to, uh, to step away or open up my phone or anything. I can just kind of think out what I want to say and, 
and go hit send in my brain and I just picture myself hitting send and it sends a text message out for me. How far away are we from something? Is that is that something that will eventually be um, feasible? The easy answer for me is it's a work in progress. Yeah. And it depends on the nature of the signal you're trying to get out. Like what we're doing, we're just looking at binary decisions, type of yes, no things, mm-hmm. yes, no signals. Uh, we're, we can get up to 90% decoding. Uh, on a trial by trial basis, ninety percent of the time, we know if somebody is thinking yes or no, mm-hmm. kind of thing. When you take that, that's a very binary, simple thing. But you take that up to the next level right. of what do you want to eat for dinner tonight? Imagine that in your head, and then decoding that. Well, that's still a lot of work has to be done in that area. Mm-hmm. There is some work showing that through a brain computer interface, and 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 here's the intricacies of it. One, how well, when I ask you right now, when I ask you what you want for dinner tonight, can you really imagine that in your mind, even of, through your own introspective experience? And how well can you actually decide in this moment? Oh, I already had this perfect filet mignon pictured in, in my head. Uh, but I, I understand what you're, what you're saying. But, but, but wouldn't you first be able to be like, okay, we can do... Someone can think like meat, vegetable, soup, beverage, sure. and, and, and like dial that in and then take the next layer of complexity after that. Yeah. So it's, it's also the level of the signal. What I would think and what I would hypothesize, let me use that term just to <laughs> put my PhD to use. <laughs> so what I would hypothesize is that perhaps the verbal signal would be easier to decode because it has a phonological structure which could almost be looked up in the way you could look up the meaning of a word in a dictionary. So you can think about things phonologically and linguistically, and that might be an easier signal to decode. The what, issue, what, what do you mean by that? Like you, you think of the, the word, actual word, like yeah, Mississippi or whatever? You hear the word in your head. You say it in your head. You have an okay. inner dialogue. You have a little voice in your head that I talks. See. Every every word you want to say, you can... Oof, I'm glad it's not just me. Thanks for <laughs> confirming that. Oof. You're clear. You might, you might still have to see a doctor. But, uh, so y- you could maybe decode it that way. The thing is, to probably do that, you'd have to go inside of the head and directly record from the, the auditory cortex and the motor cortex associated with producing those, those signals. So the, the other avenue is you could go through visual input. You could have people imagine what it looks like that they want to eat, and you could record what's going on in their visual cortex. And so every perception that you have of an object, there's a specific part of your visual cortex that represents that pattern. There's part of your visual cortex for recognizing body parts. There's part for recognizing faces. There's a part for recognizing objects. It even goes, goes so specific that there's parts of your visual cortex for recognizing tools. Because all of these different classes of objects have certain statistical patterns inherent in them. Tools have a lot of angles and are shiny. Faces have to do with these spatial metric properties, distance between eyes, and we're all kind of these face recognition experts because of our face recognition area. The point is that our visual cortex then could perhaps, and it does, respond to a visual stimulus in a very specific pattern of firing. Mm-hmm. a very specific pattern of in- interconnectivity that represents this stimulus. And so some work that's being done more recently, and this is using fMRI, 
is through the use of machine learning and, and artificial intelligence, individuals have been able to decode the pattern that's being produced in the visual cortex in response to an image so that the computer doesn't know what the person is seeing, but the computer can read out what's going on in the visual cortex and draw a picture of what the person is seeing mm. based upon the, the response of the neural activity. Mm. That's next generation. Right. That's we're in the future now, mm. like, like here now. Mm. So that that's happening. It's and and here's here's the the point that we're at when you're asking the question of how far in the future is that for us? Well, to do this, one, it only works for a few people. It doesn't work for everyone. The, some people it just it doesn't seem to work. Hmm. Other people it works really well. I found this in the work I'm doing in the, in the lab here with EEG. Some people we can predict what they're doing 90% of the time. Some people 50% of the time we're at chance. Average we're about at 70%. So that's one thing. There's these individual variances. And part of that is because each, you take a look at your fingerprint. It's a two-dimensional thing that we can use to individuate every individual on the planet. Nobody's two fingerprints are the same. That's why they're so important in, in law, et cetera, et cetera. Take your brain. It's a uh, three-dimensional structure on an XYZ axis that's moving through time. And each individual only shares about one-third of the locations of brain structure as it relates to function. Two-thirds of our brains are actually unique in terms of the relationship between brain structure and function. So every single brain is orders of magnitude more unique than they are the same across each individual compared to the differences across a fingerprint. Like we're, we, our fingerprints are all different, but each individual's brain is really, really super different from everybody else's. Mm. So for this to work in the future, one, we would essentially have to decode the signal that each individual's brain is producing in response to a particular stimulus. You'd have to do that one by one, right? Because each pattern, even though there are shared commonalities in mm -hmm. terms of the relationship between structure and function, we would have to do this for each person because each person does do it uniquely and in a, in a different way. Mm. So that's one huge challenge that would take a long time to really map out the complexities of thinking of a basketball or filet mignon for each individual to where this could actually be functionally employed when you're driving down the street and you want to make dinner reservations just with your thoughts. So you'd have to go through some extensive brain mapping studies on your own to get that signal out from your own unique individual brain. Mm -hmm. So that's one big challenge. The other is getting that million dollar fMRI machine and EEG. fMRI is really good with spatial resolution. You need that to some extent. EEG is really good with temporal resolution. The, I can't drag this machine around with me. Uh, it, there's going to have to be, and this is less of a, an obstacle, I think. This is just a matter of technology, which probably will maybe even in our lifetimes see surmounted. I don't know. That's pure speculation. But this is just a matter of getting that technology of an fMRI brain scanner or an EEG and getting it into a portable kind of format that would be functional in the way you're, you're speaking of. We're still a long way from that too, but we'll see. Uh, that's that's th those are the two 
things that are really important to consider. But we're moving in that direction. The world is really changing quickly right now, especially with the development of artificial intelligence and deep learning and how computers now are starting to learn about us things that we could never figure out. Mm. Applying these algorithms to decode the contents of our awareness, sometimes we don't know how that AI is actually doing that. We just know it is. Right. And it's doing it on a level of complexity that we can't, it's a really huge, complicated logistic regression equation that we can't comprehend. It just does it and we don't program it to do it. It learns on its own mm-hmm. and we don't know how it figured it out exactly. Right. We just know it did and that's a whole other, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, my My brother works in big data and a lot of figuring out how how in the world the thing learned to do what it it did. Um, So when you talk about, you know, there's, there's these different kind of fields of neuroscience, there's these different ways of measuring, um, measuring the brain when it comes to electrophysiology and these uh, electrical fields in the brain, what are, what can you measure in what information can be gleaned from them and what can't like, I guess my, to maybe use a simple example is, so you got this binary yes, no kind of answer and you can use this, uh, these electrical fields to measure this. But then what if instead you're, you're trying to measure stressed or not stressed or lying or being honest or something like that in the brain isn't wouldn't that be looking at more like um you know just like overall amygdala activity or something like that 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 would be um uh, you you know what i'm uh, uh, what i'm trying to say is is the are the electrical fields doing more like specific conceptual uh things or are they also um are they also playing a big role in a lot of our emotional drivers and um, and motor skills? And are, are they are they doing everything? I'm of course researchers are biased by their measure. Mm-hmm. I'll admit that, and I would say yes, this is what I measure. Of course, I want to mm-hmm. tell you that, but I would say that everything that you think, feel, and do in terms of behavior, there's a corresponding electrical field that's produced in the brain. Mm-hmm. It's a matter of actually being able to measure that and figure it out. We haven't figured all that out yet. We do know a, a, a lot of things about how the electrical field is related to specifically, like you said, behavior. We know that there's a specific rhythm that's produced when you move a muscle. If you move your right arm, you're going to see a depression of a 10 hertz signal called the mu rhythm over your left motor cortex. And that's involved with uh, controlling the, the your motor responses. So you can see this generalized in all kinds of different ways. So my, in, my answer is based upon really my measure and what I know, but there's a lot of evidence suggesting that everything you do think or feel is associated with an electrical field in your brain. Mm-hmm. Do we know it all? No way. Like this is job security for me, right? Like there, there's so much that we don't know. But there's a lot of evidence demonstrating a relationship between 
electrical fields the, the brain produces. And when you when you move up more and more towards a kind of an abstract, holistic kind of level, like binary responses to attend left or attend right, we're pretty good at that. We have that down. We know if somebody is attending left or right based upon the EEG signal in the brain. We have that. But if you start getting up to an emotional state, trying to a semantic level of representation, which might even require this entire distributed cortical network, the definition of a word and a meaning is related to the context of every other word it's been associated with in your life. So that's a much more complicated signal to try to decode in terms of a, a semantic state. So, and then it gets even more of a challenge in terms of something like a clinical diagnosis. Like you talk about, can you tell if somebody's stressed or not? And that might be related to the amygdala response. We know that much more, we, there's a lot more evidence of that from the fMRI domain in terms of stress, not stress response, because we can look at the amygdala and we know from all kinds of decades of research on psychosurgery and people who've had amygdala damage and fMRI research that the amygdala is involved with fear and an arousal response and anger. So we know that, and we, but there are also in the EEG, there's something called a late positive potential. So when you expose somebody to an emotionally salient stimulus, they tend to, there's a distributed central parietal uh, increase in electrical activity when someone is experiencing an emotionally arousing stimulus, positive or negative. So we can make some inference there. But the thing with EEG, there are all kinds of signals that aren't that, that could produce a similar response. Just because you're observing that at the scalp doesn't mean that's what's necessarily going on in the person's head. And that's part of the challenge because you could observe a distributed electrical field over the head that when you're looking at it from the scalp topography, that signal might look the same for emotional arousal to a picture of a really disturbing image. That scalp topography that we observe might look identical to somebody looking at an ice cream sundae, mm. right? It, it's a valenced emotional response. So we could say that much, but we can't necessarily directly on those larger semantic kind of emotional levels infer the contents of a person's awareness yet. We just don't, we haven't decoded it well enough yet to really be certain about those kinds of things. Whereas we have decoded it well enough for these simple, more simple kinds of tasks where, you know, you have people do yes or no things. So it gets more and more difficult the more and more conceptual the thing is that you're trying to, de to decode. Uh, yeah. So, uh, first off, before we wrap up, I have my guests each week plug a charity of their choice. Did you have one in mind? USA Wrestling, Matt Lindland, he's, he's looking for gold in the Olympics 2020. Uh, USA Wrestling, they've done a lot of great stuff with troubled kids, getting kids into programs where they can have an outlet for their energy. Uh, there's, there's, there's so many, and, and USA Boxing as well. Those, the people that go into those kind of sports usually they need it right it's it's therapy they've they were got to punch something yeah they've got a lot of energy in there yeah and if that energy doesn't come out it gets directed in a maladaptive fa fashion and i've seen lives change through those 
those types of interventions. They go into different schools. They, and it's just providing these kids who would otherwise go into situations and raise hell with an outlet for that energy. And they become leaders. They become leaders in their community. They become leaders. So I, I, that, that's the name drop. You can go to usawrestling.org. Fantastic. So I'm so happy that I got to learn so much about electrophysiology today. And this is, is uh, kind of a new field to me. Um, so I'm, I'm going to, uh, I'm, I'm gonna ask the, uh, the big edgy question of the, is I'm like this, this electrophysiology stuff sounds fantastic to me. It's, I'm like, I'm sitting here going, well, what can't you do with this stuff? So I'm, I'm going to press you on this. What are the limitations of, of your own field of study? Yeah. So number one. We don't know quite very well where in the brain the signals are rising. There's some math we can do. It's actually the same math that the geologists use to source localize where an earthquake is coming from mm. underground. But the problem is the earth is a sphere and you can have re recorders all over the earth to measure the, the vibration of the tectonic plates. To well, I mean, some people are saying it's a f sphere. Some people are saying <laughs> <laughs> I, just, I just had I, some I, flat earther yell at me on Twitter the other day for not having any fl quote unquote flat earth scientists I, on my podcast. And then and then I made fun of him and he was like, that's a typical globe globe earther comedian response i <laughs> love the flat earth movement i love it so much do you know why it's it's a fascinating just thing about human nature oh my but this is this is what i think it reflects uh, yeah i think it's a challenge to the scientific method All right. i i think it's a great opportunity for the scientific method to shut some people up yeah. Right. To to and I've heard some of their arguments, and some of them are very good. They're wordsmiths. Yeah. They're yeah. really good. They can really spin a yarn. Yeah. And I can see how people could hear that and be on the wagon. Yeah. You know, jump on the science, jump on that bus, and let's be evangelical about this. <laughs> but but I I love it as a thought experiment of being able to. To, it's a real test of the scientific method. And I, I really think more scientists should step up and really shut it up. And yeah. really, because it's, it's, it's allowing the opportunity of the scientific method to be placed on this flat platform. And I think more scientists should debate these people and, 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 and let the world know and let them know what's actually going on here right i i i think i think it's a great opportunity and i love it it's really? so well, i think it's so entertaining you're very i think it's you're so very uh open-minded <laughs> you're very you're very patient you're very that's very considerate of you um it's great I, fun it's great drama <laughs> like i when they when you say well, okay. well explain how explain how the the phases of the moon work, right? Uh, right? Most most people can't answer that question. Mo yeah. Most people in everyday life, if you go up to somebody in a bar and that's, sure. that's your pickup line, like, how do the phases of the moon work? They're like, well, you know, the light shines off the moon and mm -hmm. some stuff happens and they can't explain it. But flat earthers, they've got explanations for that kind of stuff. <laughs> that, that, is, that isn't coherent with the globular solar system. Sure. They'll have a ready answer for that, right? Um, which I find fascinating. 
<laughs> okay, well, that was a, a wonderful tangent. Um, uh, I'm so happy that happened. But back to uh, so so you use the same thing that geographers are using to uh, some of the geologists. Map, geologists, sorry, the the geographers geolog- are just down the hall. They will come knocking on the door. Like, oh no. yeah, yeah. No uh, geography. I, yeah. yeah uh, anyway, geologists. So. Using the same math, and then where were you going from there? To, to source localize the right. signal. So we're recording a signal from the scalp. We don't know, essentially, for sure, where that signal is originating. Right. We can only okay. do some fancy math to project a source, but we don't know exactly where it's coming from. A signal in the front of your head, part of that might fire up in the front of your head. The anterior cingulate might light up. But if the electrical charge is oriented in a very particular way through a certain network, that might show up at the scalp over the temporal lobe or the back of the head. Mm -hmm. And so you're observing that signal from the back of the head, but it might be originating from the front of the head. And only through fMRI can we know that. Mm -hmm. So the EEG, it has this advantage of temporal resolution, but we don't know where the signal's coming from. And we don't know exactly which neurons are firing and in what pattern. We have a specific field that the brain's producing. And that's why some people that I'm, I'm working with at uh, UC Davis, and I've, we've been trying to do this for years. I've, I've spent a lot of time with colleagues trying to figure out how to record EEG inside of the fMRI scanner. It's a big challenge because then we have both temporal and spatial resolution. Mm-hmm. It's a big challenge, though, because... When you do fMRI, you put somebody in a three to four Tesla electromagnetic field, which is huge, right? You can't go in there with your keys because it'll suck them out of your pocket. And if you're in between the scanner and somebody with their keys, it's going to really hurt you really bad. Take out those piercings. You've got to take out your piercings. People who weld can't go in there. People who've spent their life welding. Because if you weld for a long enough time, you're going to have metal in your body. It's going to suck the metal right out of your body. (laughs) So it's, it's, it's an intense electromagnetic field. EEG, though, is a really small amplitude electromagnetic field. So small, it takes a lot of work in here to make sure that the lighting system, the ambient electrical noise in the, in the building, the 60 hertz signal, doesn't overwhelm that. And there's all kinds of things we have to do to do that. So then our challenge, my, my PhD advisor was like, because we go to so much work, he had a, a EEG room with a Faraday cage to just get, out, get rid of all the electrical magnetic ac- activity that might be corrupting our EEG signal. And then one day he's like, hey, Jesse, could, could you try to record the EEG inside of one of the most intense electrical fields on the planet for me? <laughs> right. <laughs> and I was yeah. a good sport. Yeah. Uh, and, but just now, and I, I tried that, this was almost 10 years ago now and we couldn't get it to work, but just now I think we're back there now where we can record both at the same time. We're mm. just actually one of my students, uh, that just graduated from here, Olivia Kriegers at UC Davis doing stuff, trying to get that to work now. So I feel maybe like it's my white whale, right? My legacy will uh, that's <laughs> it'll awesome. be worth it yeah absolutely well thank you jesse bankson for joining me today and uh you're a terrific guest i'm super excited about everything that i learned and will use this information going forward in the future so thank you for joining me great and thank you listeners for being such wonderful curious people i'll talk with you more next week
Next week on the Here We Are podcast, talking with Zoe Donaldson in Boulder, Colorado. One of my favorite places on earth, by the way. Love, love Colorado. Love the Boulder area. Might move to the Boulder-Denver area sometime if I, if I, uh, I, I imagine I won't be doing the nomadic lifestyle forever, although I'm enjoying it. Um, at the moment quite a bit and looking forward to doing it for as long as it is still a thing that I enjoy as much as I am and finding new ways of enjoying it even more. But once I'm done with this exciting adventure or, or want to have a, a place that I call home, that might be one of my places. Just I, Sometimes I just babble about things that aren't necessary for the, for the show, um, but are interests of mine. Just so you guys, the listeners, know cool places to go out and see and, uh, and visit. But, um, but Zoe is also, speaking of favorite things, uh, we have a big discussion about prairie voles. Now... Guys, if you are if you are into uh, evolutionary psychology and biology, and you, you maybe you had some classes, you you um, you uh, you've read some books, or maybe maybe done some relationship courses. Maybe we've even mentioned this on the on the show before in passing. But but prairie bulls are real interesting, and they have uh, there's a lot of cool interesting insights to be gained about um monogamy and um and promiscuity and the tendencies in these two different species and super 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 interesting uh subject i love doing this podcast so much i love all of this stuff i am obsessed with it i'm passionate about it i i hope that that shows and comes across to you guys. I hope that it inspires you guys to everyone wants everyone to be into the same things that they're into. But man, just the way all of all this podcast, everything that we talk about on this podcast and the things that I get to learn shape my understanding of this reality, uh, whatever that is in existence we find ourselves in is just so fascinating and i it's just really you know there I, th- I really do believe there's a lot of utility in this i think that i've used this podcast to better understand my myself and this my place in this existence and my relationships with others my intimate relationships my friendships my relationships with relatives navigating my career and everything in between and outside of that and it just uh, endless and, and you know taking care of myself now a lot of that's been inspired by some of the things that I've learned along the way on this podcast so so yeah I don't know I've been thinking lately I should have a forum or something like that so so people can comment on things that they think of and, and you guys can all share some of your experiences and insights and things that you come up with when listening to this podcast and questions that you have for future guests and that sort of thing um i think that could be really cool i've just been thinking of what we can do more with the like how to kind of build this make more of a community out of this experience for as i know there's a lot of like-minded listeners out there that um 
that in in some cases feel really isolated and feel like they don't have that many they're not really in a social environment where they can um express uh as many of these things and i don't i don't even think that's always necessarily true um if you stay curious and, and keep learning you'll uh you'll you'll just naturally find little places where where some of these experiences resonate and and can connect with people and you're just better informed so you'll have more to talk about in those social experiences that's that's been my experience uh, my social experience experience but i do think that it would be cool for us kind of having the same experience of, of listening to this same very kind of specific information you know to hear about prairie bowls or whatever and hop on and and all have a little communal chat about prairie bowls like a little like a little here we are book club type of thing i think that would be so fun um i don't know i i, I hate you know sometimes i i start something and i have trouble following through i have trouble committing i i overestimate the amount of time that i have to do things like that and underestimate the amount of time and energy it's actually going to take to do it but it's definitely a cool idea and even if i just had someone else running it and could pop in from time to time i don't know i'm just kind of thinking out loud but um you're always welcome to to write me on anywhere facebook or or twitter or uh, especially the here we are podcast.com website i get all of your emails um just assume that when you're writing it i am going to read it and that it is going to be really hard for me to respond quite frankly not not like not necessarily like here we are listeners or anything but it's it's sometimes hard when you're uh, a comic or or someone that has some like perceived uh, status or something or or people think I mean, in my mind, I'm like a D minus level celebrity, but uh, sometimes you write someone back and and all of a sudden they're like, oh my gosh, this famous person is writing me back. And never mind, that's how, that's how they perceive you. And then they get all excited. And it, it is sometimes it's just like, I, you know, I can't, I can't start a whole thing in a back and forth with each individual person so i hope that you understand that and i don't you know i'm sharing it because and i probably sound like a little bit of an asshole saying it but it's just the the reality of the time constraints and energy of life but i absolutely do read 100 percent of the emails that you guys send in and it you know i i take everything into account and i've gotten tons of valuable feedback uh, from you guys and and yeah so it, it means a lot it, uh, when you guys write reviews and just all, all the interactions it just really um, drives me and and inspires me a lot so uh, so yeah I mean that to say thank you to all of you for inspiring me to make make, make a better podcast be a better person keep learning keep informing myself at uh it helps. It helps to have uh, have you guys and have have all the positive feedback. 
pushing me forward. It, it, uh, it is invaluable. So thank you, those of you that listen all the way to the end. You are, of course, my favorites. Music brought to you this week by The Long Hunt. Network.